that's here. And I think in part it's because it deals with words and uh, terms that we're not used to hearing, except for when we come to the Bible. Uh, we find words such as covenant in here and mediator. And these are words that we don't use in a regular language outside of our Christian conversation. And so trying to follow an argument that is based on the idea of a mediator and his enacting of a covenant is just by nature of our foreign, its foreignness to us, difficult to follow. And the other thing is, is about this passage of Scripture as the author is comparing Old Covenant worship with New Covenant worship, it's dealing with a subject that makes many of us uncomfortable, and that is blood and death. Those aren't things that we typically like to talk about. But yet here we're confronted with it. In fact, we see the subject of death and blood from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. It's not something we can escape. And so that's why I called this sermon, or just a simple question, why blood and death? Why do we see that in Scripture all over the place? Well, this passage begins to tell us that by answering two questions. First is, why is Christ the mediator of a new covenant? And then the second thing was, is this is what was required for a new covenant to be enacted. And we see this text answers those two fundamental questions that are fundamental to our faith. So let us hear the word of God, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. And just by us hearing that text of Scripture, you do see a prominent theme in there is blood, which is representative of death. You see many phrases that are not common to our normal conversation. We don't use the word covenant often. We don't use the word transgressions often. We don't use the word mediator often. So it becomes a difficult passage of Scripture to follow. So let's just look at it from these two questions. Why is Christ the mediator of a new covenant? And the text begins in verse 15 by answering that, Therefore... With those words, therefore, it's connecting us to what was previously stated. And it's the conclusion of everything that we've been told about the new covenant and what Christ has done. It's the conclusion of the previous arguments. 
And the previous arguments are just simply this. Jesus brings the good and better things with the new covenant. And what were the good and better things that Jesus brought? Specifically, the text of Scripture tells us that he brings an eternal redemption. That we are eternally forgiven that we are given a forgiveness of sins. And because we have been forgiven of our sins, we have a purified conscience. And this is something, by way of contrast, the old covenant could not do. In fact, he makes that very argument in verse 9 of chapter 9, is that the sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Christ, we're told in verse 12, that he brings an eternal redemption. And then we're told in verse 14, that he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Those are the better and those are the good things that Jesus brings. So therefore... That's how the therefore fits in there. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, covenant, I said, is not a word that we use often, but if you read the scriptures, you find it all the way uh, throughout the scriptures. In fact, the first place it's mentioned is in chapter 9 of Genesis, and it's the Noahic covenant. That's the first time you find that Hebrew word for covenant in the text of scripture. But then you see that word unfolding throughout scriptures in the New, Co- in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Well, what is a covenant? What is isn't a covenant? Sometimes we see it as an agreement between two parties. But what we should see is how Scripture itself defines a covenant is an oath-bound promise. So a covenant is an oath-bound promise. That's how Scripture defines it itself, is that there is a promise, and that promise is an oath-bound promise. What's interesting to me is that I take for granted, and maybe you do too, is the language we hear preached or taught or we read in the scriptures. We just walk away thinking, everyone knows the words we know. I was doing a wedding for a group of people about seven years ago, and I I was talking about covenantal marriage. And the marriage is a covenant bond. And that was a completely foreign word to them. They'd never heard that word, covenant. And so we need to be refreshed what a covenant is, and that is, and it's an oath-bound promise. And specifically, when we come into the idea of the new covenant, the new covenant is an oath-bound promise between God the Father and Christ the Redeemer. God the Father... And Christ the Redeemer. And Christ himself is the mediator of a new covenant. Now when you see the old covenant, you see the new covenant, and then you see the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, you start to see there's a lot of covenants. And so it gets hard to follow them, but actually covenant is the structure of Scripture. And how we should see that structure of Scripture is through, first, a covenant that is not mentioned in Scripture by name, but is alluded to. 
in many different places, not only in Christ's words, but most particularly you see it in the opening verses of Ephesians where God had predestined a group of people to be given to the Son in eternity. We call that the covenant of redemption. That is the plan of the Father to send the Son to die for a people that the Father will give to the Son. And that's the, the overarching covenant of Scripture is that covenant of redemption. And it's realized in time in the new covenant, which is called also known as the covenant of grace. It is a covenant of grace. Sometimes people will say, well, the covenant of grace was also in the Old Testament, but that's not what the Bible allows for. Because what we see continually through here in the book of Hebrews is that there are two covenants contrasted. One is old, one was faulty, as we see in chapter 8 in verses 6 through 7, where the author writes, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So how we should understand the old covenant is not as an administration of the covenant of grace, but rather we should understand it as a type that's pointing towards a true covenant, a new covenant, the covenant of grace, that Christ enacts in which we are saved. And it is that covenant with God the Father, with Christ the Redeemer, the Mediator. Because it is a new one, it brings the better things. It's new, it's not the same covenant. In fact, it specifically says he is the mediator of a new covenant. Meaning, when you look up the meaning of that word new, it means it was previously unknown. It had not been realized. The new covenant, the covenant of grace, was not recognized in the Old Testament except for its type the Old Covenant pointed towards what would be realized in Christ. And what is received in Christ is not only new, it's different. And this is why Jesus himself says when he enacts the Lord's Supper that he is bringing in a new covenant. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 20, he says, This covenant that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is his spilt blood that brings about the new covenant. The author of Hebrews says it is. He is. Which means this, it's an established reality in Christ. So what is new is enacted in Christ and is in Christ. It becomes an established reality. Now what is a mediator? A mediator specifically is a go-between between two parties and helps the two parties come together. Now who are these two parties? Well, specifically these two parties are God and sinful humanity. In fact, this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy in chapter 2, in verse 5, where he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so how we have to understand the mediatorship of Christ is you have God and you have a sinful humanity and they have been divided by sin and it is Christ who brings them back together. That is what a mediator does. And Christ is that mediator. Christ is the 
family mediator that is able to bring about reconciliations between these two parties, God and sinful humanity. And why is Christ this? Notice what the text tells us. It begins with the words, so that which is telling us Christ is the mediator of a new covenant for this purpose, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the words so that indicate a purpose. So what is the purpose of Christ's work? His purpose of his work is that we may receive, those that are called may receive the promise, eternal inheritance. The qualification of how we understand inheritance is that word eternal. In other words, unless a new covenant was made, mediation between the two parties would not happen, and something that is eternal, something that is lasting, would not be realized. Notice who it's for. It says for those who are called. It's for those who are called. That's a passive. When you are called, it's someone else calling you. You just just receive the call. But you don't make the call. If you're called, you didn't make the call. There was nothing you did to initiate it, but rather you just simply, you think of it in the terms of the, of the phone, you're just receiving the call for you. And how we should understand this idea is literally, if you gave a very wooden and literal translation of the participle there, it's literally the called ones. This is for the called ones. Ones. Now, who are the called ones? You see that Paul writes of the called in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and he says, And those whom he predestined, that is something beforehand, it says in the text, he also called. Something prior to the calling has taken place is that those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he also justified, which is the accomplishment of something. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which is the culmination of the calling. And so when we think of those that are called, what we have to see is that the called are those that have been called by God himself, and this calling is received by faith. We can't miss the distinction of that word called. It's so important for us to grasp that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And this text makes it so clear. And and oddly enough, it was Thomas Aquinas who said these very profound words, called, because this reward is not for our works. In other words... Even what Aquinas saw, that medieval theologian, was this calling in the text excludes any idea of works for being the basis of being called. It was a sovereign choice of God to call a group of people. There was nothing that required God for him to call anyone. He does that out of his own good pleasure. We often call this effectual calling. An effectual calling is simply this. Those whom the Spirit calls will come. That's why we we qualify that with the word effectual. 
And we have to know there's, an, there's a call, an external call, that's not effectual. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and called someone to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they rejected you? If you have, they have heard the external call. But did they not hear the effectual call of the Spirit? Because those whom the Spirit calls will come. The external call is a work that comes to our ears, but an effectual call is the internal work of the Spirit on a person's heart. And this is seen in the text, this is shown on the text, that this is not speaking of just a, an outward call, but rather an, 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 an internal call. Because it tells us there's something that happens to those that are called, and that is that they receive the promised eternal inheritance. So in other words, those that are called by the Spirit of God actually receive something from God, and that is that eternal inheritance. When you think of the Old Covenant, that inheritance was not... An eternal inheritance. It was an inheritance of land and promises that were tied to the land and that were conditioned upon their obedience. That's why we don't have today modern state of Israel that is experiencing the blessings and protections of God like they did with a king in place. In fact, that didn't happen, I think it was 1968. That was because of the UN. So that promise of a, of a land was part of the Old Covenant. That was their inheritance. It was a temporary. It was to point to something far greater. And you think of the beauty of that Old Covenant in terms of what they would receive. What was all the things that they would receive? They would receive land, fruitful wombs, they would have uh, an abundance of food, their enemies would run before them. How long did that last? It didn't last. Because it was based upon their obedience. But yet continually in the Old Covenant, you see that God would keep His lamp shining in Jerusalem for the sake of His servant David. And why did God keep that lamp shining in Jerusalem for, the servant, for His servant David? Because David is the means through which the Messiah comes. And that is why God kept that lamp in Jerusalem. That is why God kept that promise. Part of the obedience, and we'll see this here in the text later on, was the yearly sacrificial system. That they had to go about a sacrifice of animals on a regular basis, morning and evening. And then there would be the, the Day of Atonement that was once a year. They had to be obedient to all of these things. And it was dependent upon them continually butchering these animals. But in the New Covenant, there is an eternal inheritance that is conditioned not on our obedience, but rather on the active and passive obedience of the Mediator. We have to see that, that the work and the merit of that work is Christ. And that was the condition of His obedience 
Jesus himself was perfectly obedient and entered into the holy places by way of his shed blood. Therefore, his people may now enter into the heavenly city. And the old covenant picture of it was a type, but it was not it. This is why the text says of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city. Now think about this. Abraham was promised a literal land. But he understood that literal land was a type because he wasn't looking for the literal land. It says it was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham somehow mysteriously was aware of the fact that these things were types. But it says that those who are in Christ actually receive something that's not temporary, that's not a type, but is the reality, which is an eternal inheritance. And I just want you to notice how Scripture paints the picture of this reality of an eternal inheritance. The first is this, is that an eternal inheritance is ours now. So if we just simply think of our inheritance that we receive comes at death, we haven't gotten the full picture. Because the scriptures clearly teach us that it is ours even now and that Christ has ensured this. One example of it is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when we see what we receive in Christ as this eternal inheritance, we can't think of it just as future. We also have to recognize that it is ours right now in Christ. That if you are in Christ, you have at this moment an eternal inheritance that is yours. Christ says, we have it right now. Now, I think the language of Paul in Ephesians is so important. Because what we see also in this is something that helps us interpret Hebrews. Christ does not give us his inheritance but rather we by union with Christ enter into his inheritance with him. And we receive that. The second reality is that while we have it and it's ours, it's still not fully yet. Because we, we, we face this world right now. Paul goes on to say of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So Paul says on the one hand, you have this inheritance, it's yours right now. And then on the other hand, he also says, well, until we acquire the full possession of it. And so in other words, while this is a current reality, it's still something that's not yet fully realized. And if we're ever worried about that inheritance, listen to what Peter says, where we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
you. This inheritance is not dependent upon you. It's not dependent on how well you do. It's dependent upon Christ who has accomplished it, who himself has received it, and you enter into it by union with it, and then he keeps it until you die and receive it in its fullness. That inheritance is kept by Christ himself. It's undefiled, it's purified, and it's waiting for you. And Christ is standing guard over the inheritance that he invites us to be a part of. What a wonderful truth. That that inheritance that I'm told I will receive is not something that is dependent upon me, but is fully dependent upon the mediator. And there's another thing is that Paul, or the author of Hebrews, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but if you don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, well, Paul will tell us that he wrote it probably in heaven. <laughs> but he, he describes it as eternal. It means it, it can't go away. It, it's, it's, for, it's forever. It's unending time. Eternal and infinity are words that we say, but we really have no ability to comprehend those words. But that's what our inheritance is. Our inheritance is stated as something being kept for us, and it's stated in, in these ways, in, this, in these words that we can't even comprehend because an eternal inheritance is too glorious for our minds to grasp. Our minds cannot wrap around eternal. But that's what we're said that it is, and I love the way Isaiah speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. When thinking of this, in Isaiah 66, verse 22, it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And so you see this beautiful picture that Isaiah describes of the new heavens, the new earth, this eternal inheritance that we will get that is remaining, that is lasting. It's as if Isaiah is saying, all that you have experienced in losing things and the frailty and the temporality of life that we experience now, there's something greater coming. And you haven't yet gotten there, Isaiah says of it, this eternal inheritance. The old covenant was temporal. It was lost. They received land and lost it, but the land we will receive is eternal. It will be a new heavens and a new earth. And Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the one to bring about eternal redemption. He is the one to bring about a purified conscience. He is the one who brings about an eternal inheritance. This is why Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Only Christ could accomplish these things. Which brings us to the second question. What was required for a new covenant... And maybe to add a third question is, why was what was required required? Well, what was required for a new covenant? Very simple answer, just to summarize the rest of the verses, is this, death and blood. Oftentimes in the scriptures, when we think of the idea of blood, because of a passage we read that, that life is in the blood, we think of blood and life, but we actually here should not be thinking of life, we should be thinking of death. 
when we read that word blood. And here's why. Sin requires death. Sin requires death. What was the penalty for sin? It was death. You you see, what we have to understand is God is holy. God is just. And when transgressions, when rebellion take place against Him, the due punishment is death. And so what is the reason why, or what is the cause, or what is needed for a new covenant? It is blood and death. This is what we see in the text itself. It says, since a death has occurred, we see that death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. You see that at the end of verse 15. Let me read that again. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This verse is fascinating because it introduces something that is difficult to fully grasp for us is how were Old Testament saints saved? Well, they were saved by the blood and death of Christ. How, how did they know of Christ? Well, we're not really told. We're just told that Abraham knew of Christ, that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. There was a looking forward to the promised seed that is revealed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So how were Old Testament saints saved? The same way you and I are saved, by the blood of Christ, His shed blood. In other words, they were not redeemed by a sacrificial system, but by the blood of Christ. This is why David continually says, it's not the, the blood of bulls and goats that you desire, but it's a, it's a contrite heart. By the way, David writes that after committing adultery. What was the sacrifice that would be atonement for adultery? There was not one. There was stoning. But yet we see that David received forgiveness. How? By faith in Christ. And the blood of Christ was applied to David, to Abraham, to all those Old Testament saints, just as it is us. They looked forward. We look back upon the completed work of Christ. Paul states it this way, in a difficult way that's to understand in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. He says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In other words, as they trusted in God's means of atonement, as they trusted in God's word, as they looked forward to the future, the shed blood of Christ was applied to them. And what we see is that Christ's blood had to be shed to enact a new covenant. And this is shown by illustration in verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17, let me read these verses and then say something about them. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now these two little verses here might be the two most debated verses 
in the whole book of Hebrews. And it's not really over a doctrinal position, it's over a word and how a word is translated. If you have the New American Standard Bible, I believe it's my conviction at this point is that it translates these verses right. If you'll notice in the text, just look at your Bible for a moment. If you look at it there, you'll see the word will, and it's mentioned in verse 16, and then the word will in verse 17. Well, that's the same exact word that's in verse 15, and then verse 18 that's translated as covenant. And so, in a lot of Bibles, it's not translated as covenant, but rather it's translated as will. Even though it's the exact same word that's based off of the same Hebrew word that's translated as, guess what? Covenant. I believe the proper translation here is that of covenant. This is speaking of a covenant because it would be odd for the author to be speaking of a covenant in verse 15 and then go to something that's somewhat related but not really the same thing in verses 16 and 17 and speak of a will and then switch back to the idea and language of a covenant later on. And there's some reasons why we should, we should actually see this as the words covenant. It begins by saying the death of the one who made it must be established. This is speaking of a representative death. How was a covenant enacted? Well, you go back to the covenant with Abraham. How did God make a covenant with Abraham? There was shed blood, there was animals, and a flaming torch walked between those animals. And those animals were representative of the covenant maker. If I break this covenant, may I be like those animals? So the death of the one represents those that are making it. And it says, for a covenant takes place, it takes effect only at death. In other words, that's the ratification of a covenant, is when the death actually takes place. And then you notice in the text, it says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Well, the, the words they're dead are actually dead things. It's like it says that a covenant comes about through dead bodies. That's the plural use of the word. What was required in a covenant and making a covenant? Dead bodies were required. And so verses 16 and 17 are speaking of a covenant. And what we see here, and why this is so important in this argument, and I realize that it's difficult to follow, at least it's difficult for me, it's this, is Christ, as the mediator, is also the voluntary substitute that enacts the covenant by his own death to demonstrate the validity of it. Christ enacts the covenant by his own death. Christ ratifies the covenant by his own death. Christ inaugurated the covenant by his own death. Remember what a covenant is, an oath-bound promise. That oath-bound promise is by Christ's own blood. Whereas in the old covenant, it was the body of animals, as it says in the text, dead things dead bodies. But the new covenant 
is brought about by Christ. And the author continues to give this illustration in verse 18, saying, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, this is looking back as an illustration upon the old covenant. Death brought about the old covenant. And the event is described in verses 19 through 21. Let me read them. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. It's a bloody mess. I don't say that to be humorous. I'm saying that because that's what the text says. That covenant was enacted with sprinkling of blood on everything, it says. On people, on the utensils that were used for worship. And the specific, specific illustration of people being splattered with blood is coming from Exodus chapter 24 in verse 8. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating is Moses, it says in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And guess how the people responded? How would you respond if you have the word of the law coming down upon you and you saw it through lightning surrounded by a mountain and Moses comes down and his face is glowing and he gives you all of the rules of God? How do the people respond? I don't know, Moses, that's too hard. No, they said very confidently. And all of the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How did that work out for them? How does that work out for anyone that looks at God's word and says, I'll do all of these words perfectly? And so what happened? In verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. What was the whole point of that is the blood was that signification of enacting the covenant of the people agreeing we will be like that death if we break the covenant. Do you see how frightening that is? Because they could not keep that. They had to experience death. This is why Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Because Christ can say, I will do all the words of your law. And Christ did. And then we are sprinkled by His blood. The covenant keeper. And why was there blood? Well, the animal suffered the fate that was deserved of the worshiper. In fact, we see that in Hebrews, in the final verse, in verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the animal suffered the fate that was deserved of the worshiper. So what was required for a new covenant? Blood and death, just like in the old covenant. Now, the idea and the graphic description of blood and being sprinkled with blood is unnerving, isn't it? And the picture of Moses taking a basin of blood and throwing it on people is, undis- is disturbing. And fr- frankly, it's a disgusting thought, if we're just honest. 
The old covenant was full of blood. In fact, the priests were often described or are often described as butchers. You know, we think of the beauty of the temple, and I alluded to this last week, but truthfully, truthfully, I think if we could actually see the practices that took place in the temple, we would be disturbed by it. I mean, do you think of beauty when you witness an animal being butchered? Now, p- multiply that by hundreds of thousands. And that idea is especially foreign to us when we buy our meat nicely packaged at the store. It's quite a foreign object to us to think of that butchering process, but it was always before the people, blood and death of a spotless animal. Why? Because of transgressions, because of breaking God's law, because of rebellion. And so the people of the Old Covenant actually experienced something that we don't get to experience on a regular basis, and that is this, is that death was violent and horrifying and came as a result of sin. Let me say that again. Death was violent and horrifying, and it came as a result of sin because of transgressions against the law. And here is our problem. The thought of blood is more disgusting to us than that which brought about a need for shed blood in the first place. May we be more disgusted by our sin than the blood required for cleansing and purification. May we also know that in Christ, His shed blood is once for all. It cleanses all sins, past, present, and future, and that Christ's shed blood actually accomplishes a forgiveness and a true forgiveness of sins. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, we read, Since therefore we have now been justified. That is a legal declaration of innocence by His blood. Why? We're no longer guilty. We have the no longer guilty verdict upon us by God Himself because of His blood. This is wonderful news. This is the best news we can hear. Because in many ways, we are just like the people of the Old Covenant. When God calls us to obedience, we say, yes, we'll do it. But we won't and we don't. We can't. We inherit a sinful nature and we sin because we are sinful people. It is either our death or the death of another. And the requirement in the Old Covenant was obedience. The Old Covenant was related to land, but the New Covenant is different. It is new, and the requirement is faith, and that faith is by God's grace, and by God's grace alone. It's not that obedience is no longer expected, commanded, or even necessary. The obedience and work of the covenant mediator was absolutely essential, and that's what we have to see is Christ was obedient in our place. Jesus was perfect in our place. Jesus followed every single command of the Father and perfectly fulfilled it. And as a sacrificial lamb stands in the place of the called, that they may receive an eternal inheritance, that they may receive an eternal redemption, that they may have a purified and cleansed 
conscience. And Jesus himself volunteered himself for this position and was obedient all the way. And now he remains active in the holy places where he invites his people to come to him, to his throne of grace, that they may receive help in a time of need. Let us go to Jesus now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption, that eternal plan of redemption to save a people for yourself. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and died upon the cross in our place. And we thank you, our Holy Spirit, that seals us to receive that eternal inheritance. Our great God in heaven, we praise you for the gospel, the good news, that we may be reconciled through the shed blood of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song. Number.
Well, may the Lord bless your Sunday, and I hope that you have a, a safe holiday this week. And it's just very hot, so stay hydrated and cool. Before we conclude our service, I want to bring Ben and Amy, Calvin and Sophia up. Um, many of you know Ben and I went to seminary together. We have been good friends and have been fighting the battle for a long time with one another in the gospel. And... Um, uh, just sad, um, but also happy. They're going to be moving to Tennessee. And uh, so we're going to be losing, losing the Pennington family. They've just been such a wonderful encouragement over the years um, to me personally, and then also a part of our church. And so we want to wish them um, a well off and then also encourage them. You get in to be a member of a church and serve the Lord faithfully there in Tennessee yep. and continue to work in the kingdom. So as we conclude this service, would you come and say goodbye to Ben and Amy? God bless you. Mm-hmm. <laughs>